morning saturday morning <laughs> hello good morning <laughs> the spine crackers morning. uh morning edition and uh my we have our coffee my name is terry gross welcome to spine crackers uh weekend edition man i wish i could uh, can anyone do their best npr voice that was pretty much it for me i do wish I... I could do uh mr glass or is, what's his name ira ira glass, ira glass. But I can't. You got to go real up into your your nose. Na- nasal, nasal, pe- yeah. He had a moment there, didn't he? What is he doing now? He's still he, doing this American Life. I don't know, because I mean, I stopped following. I stopped listening to all that stuff. Or did he? Didn't he take over for Garrison Keillor, and they like changed the name of the show? Really? No, there's a different guy that's doing Prairie Home Companion. Because Garrison oh, Keillor was. Cancel companion is over now. It's called it's it they did it is called it's called Live From Here, but it's not Ira Glass that hosts it. It's a guy called Chris Thiel. Oh, Chris yes. Thiel, Chris Thiel's the fucking um, he's the mandolin player who's also like a nerd. Like he's, oh, he's, he's the man he plays the Mandalorian. Yeah. <laughs> really well. <laughs> like a virtuoso. <laughs> NPR Mandalorian. I will <laughs> <laughs> Hey there, this is uh, Boba Fett. This is Good Morning, it's Saturday morning. And time to peruse the news with Boba. I can't, take off, I can't take off my helmet because of my religion, but I'm here for you. I came in on a rocket pack. Is that real? Uh, well, it's complicated, but yes. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it, actually. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> you're, because, missing, you're missing out, is all I can say. It's a great show. Because, yeah, Gabe, drumroll, please introduce the book that we're talking about today. We are talking today about uh, I Serve the King of England, which is a 1971 novel by Czech uh, author Bohumil uh, Hrabal. Uh, that's, the best, that's the closest I can get. I think the, the key in the last name there is the, which A you emphasize. Hrabal? Uh, mm. Is it Hrabal or Hrabal? I thought it was Bowmel Herbal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's I not. I, I think I nailed that one. But I think you did too. Yeah, nice. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of, of of maybe we should stay away from names in this uh, book, but or just you know, listen, we're going to butcher these things, and that's yeah, that's okay. going to be a big part of today's episode is mispronouncing names. I mean, it's going to happen with other authors too if they we stray too far from. North America, places, unfortunately. Places. Uh, pretty much any and all proper nouns will be mispronounced. Yeah, even looking at the uh, the phonetic sort of pronunciation, I still don't actually know how to say it. Doesn't it doesn't help at all. It doesn't help yeah. at all. No. So anyway, um, yeah. Uh, this this is a book that tells the, the story. It follows a... Um, young bus boy named Diddy. 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 Fuck, we keep fog, man. <laughs> Diddy. Yeah. We're off to a good start here. D i t i e is the spelling for anyone out there listening. And uh, it it is yeah, Diddy. We'll go with Diddy. Um, it follows his sort of life trajectory from. 
uh, you know, about age 15, where he st starts out working as a, a bus boy in a, a hotel in uh, Czechoslovakia and sort of follows his life trajectory through various hotel jobs and um, moving up within the industry to waiter, uh, head waiter, ultimately owning his own hotel, um, all the while, so, uh, you know, through um, the political turmoil of World War II and then the uh, 1948 Czech coup d'etat where the, the Soviets supported communists overthrew the Czech government and then sort of um, instituted a, a communist regime for a few years there uh, and then you know follows him uh, through through that that's basically the, the skeleton of the story yes it's check it's check Forrest Gump it's as Gabe <laughs> already said before yeah. we started recording but, life yeah. is like a bag of check mix <laughs> god damn i know it sucks but you gotta no, you gotta was, do callbacks i was you could have gone with life is like a bag of checklets <laughs> <laughs> damn it but they're all the same it's, a that box. Was the it's not even yeah. a bag it's a box oh god it doesn't work on so many levels dude cancel this fucking episode <laughs> well, well Gabe, do we do we want to talk about why you picked this book I'm you sure, to do that yeah. too? uh first of all paul you are correct so anyone who listened last week or the week before when we talked about Moon Palace, um, one of the major points of contention was whether or not it was like Forrest Gump. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> and how often you compare things to Forrest Gump. Yes. And uh, I think this will be my third because this book is just fucking like Forrest Gump. <laughs> ah, the old doubling uh, down maneuver instead of... <laughs> I love it. a thesis paper on every book is is for like 30 percent of all books is, uh, is just forrest gump yeah forrest gump is like the joseph campbell like fucking mono myth <laughs> yeah yeah the forest's journey wow um so yeah i picked this book i i i i, I am personally a, a really big fan of um you know eastern european sort of post-world war ii Soviet Socialist Republic kind of Eastern Bloc literature. Um, I find it so, you know, like Bruno Schultz is one of my favorite authors and all, all those sorts of guys who were writing in that sort of post-war, you know, communist era in that part of the world. I've always just found that their work just in general to just be so this perfect blend it's it goes beyond dark comedy to me because it's it's yeah so like um it's so human and it's so sort of sympathetic but also like horrific and sad uh and and, and absurd you know the absurdism of that part of the world in those years is like impossible to to overstate i think and i've always just loved that that sort of you know, not to lump it all together, obviously, but like literature from that part of the world in that period in history has always really appealed to me. So that's why I picked this book. I, I'd read one of his other books, um, Dancing Lessons for the Advanced in Age. Uh, I think it's <laughs> excellent. And uh, I wanted to read another one. This, I mean, it, you can kind of generalize a bit though. I mean, it's, it's kind of, I feel like a lot of people, I don't know, like ten, tend to, uh, 
sort of describe the effect of World War, like the post-World War II kind of ripple effect, especially coming hot on the heels of World War One, and just like, uh, and its effect on art in general, not just like writing and everything. And then like in, in that region, in those regions and those cultures that you just described, which seems hyper niche, there just, there was, I think understandably like a ton of uh, creative, I don't know, like turnout and work happening there is, is uh, just because like you said, yeah, there, it's, you get all of the like dark, I don't know, like surreal human tragic comedy of just like the ruptures of these wars overturning things that were considered once to be like kind of a given and steadfast. And then like also like meditating on the ill, the evils humanity is capable of. And then also, especially like, for instance, in this, uh, you know, in Czechoslovakia anyway, like multiple types of kind of basically despotic governments mm -hmm. and uh, ideologies taking place like one after another and all just kind of being dysfunctional and bad. And yeah, you, you definitely are going to get some, an interesting perspective that you're not going to be able to get from any other like time period. Yeah, I definitely think it's, it was a sort of unique, uh, uh, kind of concatenation of circumstances that that came together to produce that that specific sort of tone and approach that a lot of those writers from that period took for sure. Um, it's probably difficult to not be influenced when all that was going on too as a writer. Like if you were alive in your twenties and thirties and forties during the wars, it's like how can you how can that not influence your work in some way too? You know. What's interesting about this book, though, is is how it's not like it's minor influence, but just how little the I don't know, like the war kind of just happens in in the in the background, and then the Nazis are are there in Prague, like Forrest, like, like Forrest Gump. It just kind of happens, like no, because he goes to Vietnam within dude. the story. Yeah, it's just yeah, but it it was like you're right. Got it's you. just like a story happening around him, you know, right? Kind of offhandedly involved in. Doesn't Forrest Gump just like get on a bus and go to Vietnam? I forget even why he goes to Vietnam. He's just like, I'm in Pretty Vietnam. Sure he now. runs there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he runs like the Jesus <laughs> lizard across the water. <laughs> uh, Do you know what I mean? It, yeah, in terms of like the yeah, I mean, I think it, it's it is sort of that that background radiation in terms of the way the story is told. Like it's it the war, you know, he's much more affected by the the sort of after effects of the war individually than he is by the war itself, at least at the beginning. Um, and I mean, I think later on the war, obviously, you know, it's sort of like. Um, erupts into his life at like key moments um, and like changes the sort of course of his, you know, story. Um, but, you know, and, and, and then I think like towards the end of the book when he's kind of reflecting on his life, he has a sort of different view of it than he did as it was unfolding around him. Um, but yeah, I think I know what you mean, Matt, in terms of the the sort of war just being this kind of ambient thing which you know maybe reflects more accurately what it's like if your country is not an active 
war zone, but it's like happening close to you. And there's like interpenetration of cultures that are fighting each other and stuff. Like if you're just a citizen with your head down, it would might maybe just kind of, yeah, crop up in these weird, you know, sometimes violent ways, but mostly just be something you are maybe even actively trying to ignore. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I think that's a good, a good, and I think that that comes through in the book in a lot of ways too. And, and especially the active, the sort of active ignorance part. Um, yeah. And it's interesting, this, this book, so Krabal was an inter uh, interesting guy. I'm not going to get into his biography too much, but he had a, a number of books in the 70s, including this one, that were banned from publication. He was, he was banned from publishing, period, in the 70s um, by the, the government. And this book and a couple others were published in sort of, um, you know, secret Samizdat editions that were only available on sort of the, the underground, you know, um, and I don't think it was published until the 80s officially. Um, and yeah, so he was sort of intimately familiar himself with kind of being, you know, suppressed and stuff by by these sorts of tyrannical or not, you know, tyrannical is probably an extreme word, but um, his work was viewed politically, certainly in Czech. And that, that's right, because like the, the communist party that like succeed uh, like did the coup d'etat weren't they they were in power for a long time weren't they mm -hmm. yeah like 48 to like the 90s sometime i think something like that yeah i don't know the exact dates so is that why he would have been like you know repressed and censored yeah. yep got you i mean he gets he gets freaky I, <laughs> like uh it, but in like a funny way is just like uh, I, I feel like the first half of this or the first maybe third of this book is so front loaded with like hilarious because he's a waiter. He's just like this little guy. He's like super short. He's a manlet. He's running around uh, and he is just appeasing people's various appetites and his own. And it's just eating and fucking is basically yeah. like all that is happening in some form or another uh and just like the you know the subtleties of, of different hedonistic pleasures and stuff yeah I, it's really funny is very is very sort of erotic and yeah hedonistic is a great word but uh like who did the cover i uh, of this particular of the new york review of books edition because like i also what is this called this style I'm so stupid. I can't fucking. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> right. uh, it says cover I, illustration by someone named Catherine Denvere. Um, and oh, I, I know her. I know her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, biblically. Yeah, I know her. One's and I don't know what you would call this style art. I don't know visual art. art. <laughs> <laughs> There's certainly images. The, uh, yeah. If if our pronunciation is bad, our visual art knowledge is worse. Uh, Paul, you're an it's artist. Definitely, I am, but uh, this is definitely an art style, as I can see. Mm. Um, <laughs> That's no, yeah, it's at the tip of my tongue, but I can't think of it honestly. Anyway, it's cool, it's a, though. I like so, it. So, Matt, what's your? Uh, I mean, we can describe it, but it's this sort of very kind of like angular and and sort of, um, you know, illustrative. It's pretty yeah, illustrative. Yeah, semi-cartoonish, like. Almost looks like like uh, 
you know, like sort of like a South Park animation style, almost like flat paper. You know what I mean? Beautifully said. You'd yeah, like a, you. yeah, exactly. Visual art again, my forte. But I don't know. It's just it's it's a good evocation of the feel of I, I would say again like the first third of the novel yeah where you're kind of like enchanted and in this like uncanny and I don't know hyper uh, uh like exaggerated world of you know glittering hotels and silverware and and fancy glasses with all types of booze in them and just fancy people just eating and and having sex with each other and uh selling wonders and it's all just like it's uh, in the words of uh, you know Clifford Lee Sargent, uh, no, the beast. Yeah, just sex and death, man. Sex and death, baby. The Except only two things worth writing death. about. There's not a lot of death in the first part of the book. Well, no, like I was saying, death kind of. Well, I mean, death is kind of a almost a revelation at the end, and it. it I think it very specific, like pointedly, just sort of floats and looms around Dee Dee without him acknowledging it for the vast majority of the book but yeah yep just people indulging a lot in the beginning yeah i and i'll just say as you know part of the reason not necessarily that i picked the book in the first place but reading it part of the reason that i i loved it so much and i'll just put my cards on the table i fucking loved this book <laughs> i i enjoyed it immensely and um one of the reasons that that's the case is that uh I, I spent most of my life in the service industry until like two years ago. And mm. um, it it is so just accurate, even to to this day, right? It's these people who are like, obviously that's a very different culture, like, like formal, you know, like waiting in very fancy hotels uh, in Europe in that period of time where you're serving, um, you know, generals and you know government officials and it's very formal and it's very proper and you you're expected you know the opening lines of the book are are hilarious where his his first job as a bus boy his boss pulls on his his one ear and says hey you see nothing and you hear nothing and then he grabs his other ear and he says but you see everything and you hear everything <laughs> yeah and, and i just thought that that was such a great sort of introduction to that world um where you are sort of expected to be this kind of like impartial uh, observer um, where it's just, and, and that contrasted with the sort of like orgiastic insanity <laughs> of what he witnesses is, is I think hilarious and, and still true. Yeah, I mean, I spent only a couple of years in the service industry, mostly as like a dishwasher and a bus boy, but I, remember those years like so vividly and clearly and he just like he really did a good job just like describing that world of being a server being in the behind the scenes so well it also i mean i definitely had vibes of grand budapest hotel the first third of this movie and that's not even a bad comparison i really like that movie no um, actually it's not yeah i would say yeah it's not yeah. actually at first, when I first started reading it, I was like, is this just like, is the Grand Budapest Hotel just based off this book? And he ripped it off completely because it, it, you know, you get the feeling that he, there's some foreshadowing pointing to that he is going to become like a, a successful guy, millionaire later in his life. And that's what happens in Grand Budapest Hotel. It's like told from the point of view of the young busboy when he's like in his 60s or something. 
Yep. And he's like telling his life story. And I was like, Wes Anderson, you're a fucking hack. <laughs> but then it, that, but then it, you know, it definitely took different twists and turns along the way. So I was like, okay, it's different. Everyone, everyone that isn't us or an author that we enjoy is a hack on this. Indeed. <laughs> yes. Official stance. It's a hard, it's a binary. Uh, it's yeah. Drooling but, hog hack fraud. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck yeah. That's right. But I think, yes. like, you know, again, it's even down to the, just the different, you know, characters that he interacts with from the sort of hotel owners to, you know, the diff, the, the, the porters to the different head waiters that he works under. They're all like archetypes that anyone who spent a lot of time in the service industry knows. Like I, I know, you know, one of the first head waiters or, or I forget if he's a head waiter or just a waiter that he works with, um, who is, becomes a figure in the story throughout, um, Zdenek. Is that how we're saying He's like, he's like, uh, he's a main character. He's yeah. He's throughout the whole thing. Yeah, he's throughout. Yeah. The book and his sort yeah. of personality as a waiter is, you know, he's the guy who, at the end of his shift, he goes out and spends every cent that he made getting wasted and like buying flowers for people in the town and like waking up the entire like village at like five in the morning to make someone play music for him. Right. And, like he, I know that I know many people like that from the service industry. It's like Mr. Nihilistic Good Times. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, later some of the other one people he works under are are more sort of like, um, you know, like very clinical and very like scientific about it, and they can predict, uh, you know, what every customer is going to order before they order it, um, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and I, <laughs> I, I just know this cast of characters was was intimately familiar to me, and I thought it was very like a very human portrayal of that industry and like well, i guess we could we could talk about uh like i think the second hotel he works at the the so the second head waiter he works under the hotel is actually work what hotel tichota yeah. um he, that's where we get the title of the book though because he starts uh working under this waiter and the waiter can just basically like guess where someone who just came in like where they're from and what they're going to order and uh they put like 20 dollars down in front of them and he's like go ask and guess what they're going to eat and the uh dt always gets it wrong and the head waiter always gets it right and he says like how do you know that and he's like i serve the king of england <laughs> and that's just like a running funny joke that i love so much <laughs> every time he's just like I served I served the King of England. Yeah, so I think it's I think it's actually the third hotel that he works at. Um, but Mr. Uh, Mr. Scrivanek, Scrivanek, Scrivanek. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're, we're getting we're all, I think we're like in the ballpark with these pronunciations. Yeah, you'll definitely I, if you read it, you'll know who what you see the letters that <laughs> that it's that guy. <laughs> in my head, I was calling him Skrillex because I can't read. <laughs> Mr. Skrillex, just controlling Skrillex. people's BPMs on the dance floor. I'm Skrillex. I serve the King of England. I I do think though that like while these people are all like hilarious, I get the sense that like uh, Hrabal, Hrabal, Hrabal 
uh, and or maybe just through Didi is like he enshrines this ability as an art form, and I don't think totally derisively or dismissively. Like I, I think he he genuinely believes there's some like maybe that's the kernel of of useful kind of like the gem of uh of uh, you know to be extracted from the morass of just people like slopping down food and drinking and fucking uh is like some weird sensitivity to who people are right i guess it's still in relation to like what they want to fucking eat or buy but <laughs> like uh you know it's it it it's useful and i don't know how much of a joke it is because like it is funny that like i serve the king of england is a refrain but like he's saying that shit right up until the end as well, well. And, right and, yeah it does become this sort of like almost like mystical knowledge and it it it, it sort of extends it's his to, mantra to, yeah it's his mantra it's the sort of like um yeah like like chant it's like this gregorian like re repeated you know uh thing and and it does you know sort of extend in didi's case out past um you know the service industry he's able to sort of like you know he predicts all sorts of different he predicts when the war is coming at one point he predicts you know because it has to do with sort of prediction and sort of like having a sense of people and like where the wind is right. blowing and he sort of starts predicting all sorts of bizarre things um and people ask him and, and in Didi's case and we'll, we can talk about this scene because I thought it was so great he he never serves the king of England um but he does wind up serving Haile Selassie who's obviously a real historical figure who's the emperor of Ethiopia um at the time and uh uh so that becomes his sort of version of of where he sort of is entered into this mystical tradition of, of server knowledge right and that that scene is so funny as well. <laughs> oh my god, it's so funny! Because the fucking meal they make is just like, it's so over the top and hilarious. It's so extra. There's it's very extra. It's very dark too. Like the slaughtering of the camel scene was pretty dark. Where the cam or yeah, I think it was a camel. Where the camel just like knew it was gonna die. They they slit his throat. Exactly. Gross. But they make basically a turducken type of meal out of a camel. <laughs> Yeah. And and yeah. like I kind of forget what else. Like they just keep stuffing different animals inside the camel. <laughs> uh, and, and it finally ends in uh boiled eggs. Yep. Which I feel like I don't know if I'm being too sweaty about this interpretation, but it did feel a bit like the sort of, you know, evolutionary chain kind of genesis thing where at the core there are these eggs and there's these like high, higher order mammals, and then finally the humans feast upon it and like weep because it's so like delicious and like transcendently good so i actually found the passage where they bring that out and i'm just going to read it uh because i think one thing we haven't really touched on yet is the actual the actual style of this book which i found really interesting as a sort of like hybrid of like relatively direct narrative with these other sections of like just totally stream of consciousness like bouncing around from different topics to different topics and it's it's sort of like you know it's almost um there are some paragraph breaks but not many and it's like pretty much just like a, a block of text thrown at you and i i, I think i i didn't double check this and i i couldn't find any like sources on it, but i heard a, a, someone else discussing this book and they their claim was that the translator the english translator actually inserted all the paragraph breaks um and they weren't uh, in the original check 
Uh, I don't, I can't, don't quote me on that, but I had heard that and I could totally see that being the case um, just based on the writing style. So anyway, this is, we all have the same copy, right? Fuck. I can't do it because of my green screen, but yeah, we do. <laughs> yeah. We do. Okay. So it's on 112 into 113. Um, okay. So this is how it starts on the bottom. The emperor, he's talking about Haile Selassie. The emperor stood up and pointed to the barbecued camel and with the interpreter translating said that it was an African and Arabian specialty, a modest gift from the emperor of Ethiopia. Two assistants brought two huge cutting boards into the middle of the dining room, fastened them together with clamps, set the camel down on this enormous table and brought in the knives and sliced the camel in half with broad strokes, then cut each half in half again. A stupendous aroma spread through the room. In every slice, there was a piece of camel and antelope. And inside <laughs> the antelope, a slice of turkey. And inside <laughs> the turkey, some fish and stuffing and little circles of hard boiled eggs. The waiters held out the plates and then starting with the emperor, we served the roast camel. I knelt down, the emperor gave me a sign with his eyes and I served him his national dish. It must have been wonderful because all the guests fell silent and the only sound came from the clanking of all those golden knives and forks. Then something happened that neither I nor anyone else, perhaps even not even Mr. Skrivanik had ever seen before. First, a government counselor, a well-known epicure, was so enraptured with the barbecued camel that he stood up and yelled with an expression of bliss in his face. And it goes on and on. Like, <laughs> ultimately, this guy starts like pounding his chest and he runs out into the street. And it's just like, yeah. like very extreme, like hilarious <laughs> expression of like gluttony. But also there's that weird, uh, slightly before the, chunk you were reading there's that just little acknowledgement that like the low the lower down in rank the different functionaries were the more the more they ate yes. until like you got to Selassie himself who like I think just like has like a couple mouthfuls and just like closes his eyes and is just like yes <laughs> yes <laughs> I'm not sure what to take from that but I thought that was interesting well I think this you know the whole book and there's a couple sections on this that I that I have highlighted the whole book is very conscious of class and rank and um, right. sort of, you know, uh, you know, economic stature, economic and social stature in all, both with like, you know, and that goes everywhere from within the restaurant industry to, you know, in society in general. And there's obviously we'll talk about later, you know, Didi's um, uh, interaction with the Nazi party um, which is a huge part of it as well. But, you know, he's very, he's very conscious of that sort of thing. Um, there's a line early on, let me see if I can find it, where he says, where he talks about that directly. Um, I'll see if I can find it. Well, there is a, I mean, even though I think you're obviously right, there's a lot of, like, I think Didi is very conscious and very, like he just wants to rise up like his goal is to basically just be a hotel owner someday he wants to be a millionaire he wants to wear like nice neckties he uh he looks at the people around him and in the early on he meets a salesman and there's a big sale there's a big section where he just talks about all the interesting characters that are that salesmen that come into the hotel paris um and this guy kind of puts the idea in his head that he has something special and he could like make it big someday and that that character is hilarious to me. He's like this huge fat guy that eats salami on his, <laughs> yeah. On, yeah, his awesome. on his hotel floor. Like he goes into his hotel room and he's just laying on his back with and like salami finds, all over him. The floor of his room with his money. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one thing I thought I found interesting though is that like even there there's like a a class system and like you know 
this person is not the lower class, whatever. Um, the rich people that come into the hotel are mostly described as being like very indulgent and they kind of have a rapport with a lot of the wait staff and they tip really well and they give them a lot of business. So there was, I don't, I can't think of any instances where like the guests would come in and be like overtly horrible uh, to the staff. Like there, there seemed to be more of a camaraderie sense than my memories of of working in the uh, service industry. It was well, one, of like, the, one of the things- Like a war. One of the things that Didi points out a little bit later in the in the book is that, you know, it's this, there's this dichotomy between sort of being brought into this like right. Dionysian, like suspended space in the restaurant where, you know, it's custom for the, the customers to offer their waiter drinks whenever they're drinking. And like, there's all this, they're, they're, the waiters are part of it. And there is that sort of camaraderie or that sense of being in a, in a weird little community for that moment. But then he also says that like, if you ever saw them out in the street, they would pretend they'd never seen you before, right? And they would yeah, just yeah. So there's also that aspect to it. Yeah. Right. There's the, the class manifests <laughs> right. uh, in just this hard line, you know, between like you you have a, a you have your sort of small purview as a waiter, or even if you're like a decorated waiter, yeah. that you will never breach your bubble that you're, you know, you're meant to serve in. Also, yeah, I like like Didi never gets the opportunity, or or uh, he just he just lives in a world where like he's just there to you know take in the information of these other people within this very specific industry and like kind of emulate them and desire what he's able to see at any given moment, which is like very little outside of these like sort of consumption and spending habits because like you know initially he's lived with his grandma and they're like fished in underwear out of a fucking river and like washing it and reselling it to factory workers and stuff and it kind of sucks yeah oh and sorry. then i was just gonna say he he's literally like boarding in these other places like he it's not like he goes and like lives with a family or anything like he he just lives in the hotels and like is meant to come up through this world and learn specifically from the like elegant head waiters like you know yeah i was just gonna say uh there's a pet when he's talking about living with his grandma early on there is a little line where he says that looking back this is like the happiest time of my life and i think that calls to the i don't want to jump ahead too far but the very end he kind of gets back into that mindset um like living simply and kind of forgetting his whole i serve the emperor of ethiopia mantra in a way you know like he kind of liked and found himself back at the simple life towards the end and enjoyed it can i does anyone mind just and and i think this is i, I think i would uh, there's an extended section that i'd like to read it's like a page um just i think to get a sense of a little bit more of the writing style but also one of my favorite scenes in the book it's early on and it's it's the reason I'm, I want to read it is because it sort of pre precedes this claim that he makes about class later. Um, so this is the, there's this general that comes in, this is on 61 to 62. Um, or, so it's early on in the book, it's his um, second Whoa. hotel job and second server job. And uh, there's this general who comes in um, and he's the, he's a German general 
and he's uh, ordering food. And this is basically the description of, of them serving him. And I just found it to be one of the funniest things that I've read in a really long time, but also sort of describing what we're talking about a little bit. Uh, so this is starting in the middle of 61. The general said, you are my guests as well. Zdenek bowed and brought two more glasses and filled them. And the general stood up, clicked his heels, shouted prost and drank. We emptied our glasses, but the general took only a sip from his and made a face, shuddered and spat out. The devil, I can't drink this stuff. He took an oyster from the plate, threw his head back and eagerly swallowed the delicate slimy fresh flesh sprinkled with lemon juice. And again, he seemed to eat with gusto, but no, he shuddered and snorted with disgust, his eyes watering. He downed his glass of champagne and shouted, ah, I can't drink this swill. He walked from room to room and each time he came back, he would take a piece of crab meat or leaf of lettuce or some salpicone from the plates. And each time he shook, shocked me by shuddering in disgust and spitting out, the devil, this is completely inedible. Then he would come back and hold out his glass for a refill and ask Zdenek a question. And Zdenek would bow and tell him about the Vouve Clicquot and all about champagne, though he considered what he was offering, Heinkel Trachen, to be the very best. And the general, his interest aroused, would drink again, sputter in disgust, but then he'd drain the glass and walk over to look out into the courtyard where everything was dark except the floodlit porter and his work and the floodlit walls stacked with pine firewood. Meanwhile, the boss wheeled about silently. He'd glide up, bow, and then glide away again. And the general's mood improved as if his disgust with the food and drink had somehow whetted his appetite. <laughs> he switched to brandy and drank a whole bottle of Armagnac. And every time he took a drink, he would make a face and swear and sputter in Czech and then in German. I'm not gonna read the German, I can't uh, go there. Um, it was the same with the French specialties. After every mouthful, the general seemed on the point of vomiting and he swore he'd never take another bite or drink another drop. And he would roar at the head waiter and at me. What is this you're giving me? Are you trying to poison me? Do you want me to die <laughs> wine? But then he would drink another bottle of Armagnac and Zdenek would lecture him on why the best brandy is called Armagnac and not Cognac because cognac comes only from the region called cognac. And even though the best cognac comes from two kilometers outside the border of cognac, it still has to be called brandy, not cognac. <laughs> By three in the morning, this is like my favorite part. By three in the morning, when the general predicted that he wouldn't last because at two o'clock, we had killed him by offering him an apple. He had, <laughs> he had eaten and drunk enough for five men, but still he complained that it wasn't filling him up, that he probably had cancer without knowing it or stomach ulcers at least, <laughs> that his liver was shot and he was sure to have kidney stones. <laughs> and then he goes on to like start shooting glasses and stuff in the, in the hotel. Yeah. <laughs> It's, I just thought the, that whole scene, and the scene is much longer than even I read, but I thought it was really descriptive of that sort of feeling um, that you were trying to get at, Paul. Well, and, and what what feeling? Well, just the feeling of sort of like being uh, a part of this weird this weird camaraderie where he's insulting you, but he's also curious about what you have to say, and he wants more of the the champagne you have, and even though he says he hates it um and yeah it's just yeah sort of, and that comes well back i mean sort of uh the sort of sort sense of like a, a friendly insult that's another thing that comes back over and over again in the yeah yeah i think he uh you can probably speak about this more than me gay but when i did work in the service industry for a short time it, it seemed like everyone was just a fucking character like if you were to be in that world you had to almost become one or you you were one no matter what to other people that you work for um people that came in that were regulars became like characters and there's always something just weird and unique about 
a lot of these people that is just like the strange behavior i mean a lot a lot of the head waiters are just like they're very much themselves and they have just strange ways of doing things um and i thought that that was just really fucking descriptive and great and really funny and he just hit the nail on the head he must he must have known this world in some way the author i don't know if he ever worked in the service industry but i was like damn probably he was probably getting shut down from ever publishing anything and needing to like survive i bet yeah. well it's funny because like you know everyone there's so much it's such an information dense book as well there's so much that i know like i feel like the vast majority of it just sort of like blew by me like i i all these things feel highly coded in like eight layers of of meaning each like little event and and you know character that walks in and each each scene which is something i really also think is true in general like maybe about these kind of eastern european former russian satellite places have having to speak having this is kind of tying into the point i'm trying to make like awareness of being observed being reflected in the writing as like you know and in, in the same way that Didi is constantly observed and like you were saying paul it turns you, you you kind of are are molded by the awareness of it which is like almost a cliched kind of like what i don't know that's like foucault or something <laughs> like yeah yeah the panopticon yeah but you're, you know yeah. Yeah, I know that. I mean, I do think, but he does, he does have that sort <laughs> nice, of awareness of, of, and this is the other the sort of follow-up passage that's a lot shorter that I wanted to read after that, that, that one describing the general, because this is where he sort of, for the first time, articulates directly this sort of class consciousness that he gets from his work in the hotel. This is on 68, just at the top of 69. So this is after the description of the general. He says, here in the Hotel Tichata, I also learned that the ones who invented the notion that work is ennobling were the same ones who drank all night long with beautiful women on their knees, the rich ones who could be as happy as little children. I always used to think that the rich were damned, that country cottages and cozy little parlors and sour soup and potatoes were what gave people a feeling of happiness and well-being, and that wealth was evil. Now, it seemed that all that stuff about happiness in poor country cottages was invented by these guests of ours who didn't care how much they spent in a night, who threw money to the four winds and felt good doing it. <laughs> and and one of the funnier moments too, which I feel like comes after that bit of revelation there, is when Didi starts just chucking fucking coins everywhere mm -hmm. to, for the pleasure yeah. of watching people scramble for them and pr by pretending that they were looking for something else. Yes. They're like, no, I dropped my I dropped my watch, and they're but they're secretly like getting the coins that he dropped and stuff. And just kind of like in a very like comically overt way, just sort of watching the power of of cash, cold hard cash. Yes. A, a, one other person, the porter, I didn't, I just, there was one thing about the porter, the big monstrous dude who chops, chops wood. Chops wood for show. Yeah. Another great, I don't know. Great character. But, um, it, you know, it turns out that he, uh, he, he, uh, his wife cheated on him at one point with like a gendarme of some kind. And he killed that guy and beat his wife almost to death. And then he had a cat that he really liked. And then the cat, uh, bred mated with a Tomcat and he got pissed again and killed both the cats. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, he, uh, what does he do? He like, he takes the Tomcat and like 
severs its spine and leaves it to die for two days and then he just shuts out his his cat and is like no you can't come back yes slut yeah Yeah. (laughs) and his cat just kind of like doesn't come back after a couple days but it was so gross that like he severs the cat the male cat's spine by pushing a brick into its stomach or something against a wall until it's he's paralyzed and then he throws it on a gutter grate and just leaves it there like very very cruel but all of that to for this one moment where he says uh Didi I think is describing the porter he's like he was a gentle and sensitive soul and therefore had a shirt temper which is why he went straight after any everything with an axe both his <laughs> wife and the cat because he was horribly jealous of the gendarme and the tomcat and I I remember hearing just something again I think this is uh I forget where I I heard about this. Maybe it was Nabokov said something about this, but uh, the difference between sensitivity versus sentimentality Mm. where like, you know, it's just like there, there's just a distinction where like one of them uh, is able to still be like horribly violent and do like (laughs) unspeakable horrors to people while still being like, you know, very like emotionally, affected by a piece of music or like you know a, a kitten in, in in you know a, a gutter or something while at the same time just being able to fucking like murder whoever and yeah. uh yeah i read that as like uh like kind of a poke at people that are you know humble and quiet and sensitive and you get the sense that they're just like a nice person but people like that can be basically holding something back about the personality like their entire lives and then it bubbles up um i thought it was funny it was a funny little (laughs) jest at those types of people (laughs) Uh, this book is about going mask off this book is about (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean speaking of masks i didn't underline it and i I, maybe one of you guys can find it but the scene where he goes to like the second or third hotel and he's under a head waiter and the head waiter like is known for being able to hold like what like 12 plates on one tray (laughs) and he also like every time he goes out into the floor he'll like dip down and like take a few like fingers of the soups and shit (laughs) but (laughs) and then there's one scene where he walks out and immediately gets like sneezed on or something or a guy like bumps into him and he drops two plates and apparently there's a rule that if you drop two plates you might as well just drop the whole thing so he like fucking flings it and then he goes crazy for like four pages and it just doesn't end like uh he just goes mad and he'll go he went into the kitchen and like like ripped the stove off so like it was was flooded with freaking like uh gas or like smoke and shit and then you think it's over and then the cops come but then he like goes to the bathroom or something and rips the water pipes out so (laughs) he just goes insane it was so funny i was cracking up the subtitle of the book is actually sicko mode. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually Molly Percocet. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and it's all in the name of, of like honor and this hilarious rule unwritten. And even that German, I also liked, we were talking about that German glutton guy yeah. who's just going ham and like, eating and gagging before <clears throat> and then like <laughs> just charging his weapon at like crystal and like cups and stuff but like i think the key is like in the end 
it's all approved of. It's all like contained in this world and then put on his bill. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I feel like that's super significant. And then these people come all like, you know, they've, they've drained their fucking boil for a minute and it's like really, they're relieved of its pain for a second. And then they can, they're all like grateful and then they leave and until they're full of fucking noxious pus again, they need it to be drained <laughs> at, <laughs> at these establishments, which are there to like, kind of like, they're like, they feel like a lot of the time, like relief valves for like the worst aspects of humanity. Yep. Yeah. And there, yeah. I mean, later on in the book, there's even, there's so many, I mean, there's so many examples of that, but like, there's that, there's the whole one, there's the hotel that has like the specifically designated rooms for the doctors, the, the like the, de the department of internal medicine is what the, <laughs> name of the, the name of the room is. And it's basically where like these, these doctors will come and get drunk and they have a, a prostitute come and they like, don't have sex with her, but just like medically examine her. Like, like, and it's just so dark and bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. And that, so this, we're still swirling around basically the first, yeah, I don't know, third of the book. So, so yeah, maybe we should move, move on to the, so that's sort of his, his experience in the, the hotel and, and service industry. And there's, there's so many other weird stories. There's a story about like a bunch of Bolivians who come to get a golden statue of Fuck. blessed by a, a, a priest and it becomes this whole like caper almost briefly where like there, there's a second copy that's fake that they have to hide. But um, they keep getting it confused with the real one. Yeah. And like at one point they, one of the guys who's meant to get it from uh, even just takes a doll that he thinks is just cooler looking at one point. <laughs> and they're like, no, <laughs> we need the Bambino de Praga. So there's so many weird little stories like that throughout also. Um, yeah. So ultimately, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was saying that, that, I mean, I think that's pretty obviously maybe a dig at, at just like the church or religiosity, yeah. like religious people just not knowing real from fake and sometimes even straight up just get being distracted by something cooler looking. Well, and of course the whole thing, right, is that like the, the they, you know, they have to, they have to bribe like every church official they interact with and the main, you know, guy that they wanted to bless the, the statue will only do it if he's on TV and broadcast while right. he's doing it. <laughs> Man, fuck, that's a good, yeah. Um, so so he's moving through the, the service restaurant industry and uh, then, you know, World War II slowly sort of starts seeping into the story. Um, in, in this case, in the form of a girl that he falls in love with who comes into his hotel one day, um, uh, whose name is escaping me right now. Do you guys remember? Lisa. Lisa. Elizabeth, but Lisa. Yeah. Um, and she's a, a Nazi gym teacher, basically. Perfect. <laughs> so perfect. <laughs> and um, they fall in love. He gets fired from his hotel job because there was a... Uh, he's awarded a medal by Haile Selassie, and his boss resents him. And there was a mix-up where they thought he had stolen a golden spoon, but he actually didn't. And so he winds up being, being fired... Um, after he starts hanging out with this Nazi uh, woman for being a Nazi sympathizer, basically. And we, I think it's also significant that uh, the last other two jobs as well, he's fired. Yes. Or like being, yeah. and, and he's almost blamed for the, you know, the Bambino, Bambino de Praga uh, mix up too, all, in, you know, by like petty kind of vindictive waiters who feel like he stepped out of turn. Yep. 
I, I feel like that also informs kind of his, his, his vibe later on as well. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it, we're going to get into some dangerous territory here. Um, but I, I, I felt like this, this section where he sort of is drawn into Nazism and sort of Nazi sympathy, uh, is so effective at like humanizing that entire process. Yeah. Uh, and and like it's it's so gentle in in a lot of ways in terms of describing how this kind of like short, you know, like you said, Matt, like a little manlit outcast guy who right. just happens to have blonde hair and blue eyes, is like feels like he's finds a, a home when he had been denied one for so long by sort of, and he's like valorized by the Nazis. Like you, you're awesome. You rule because of right. these, these incidental facts about you. But I, I, I it, he, he does a great job of starting you out gently on that path. Yes. Uh, and then, but also like no, no punches pulled is like very, very quickly. Didi's like, yet, I'm just in the same situation I was previously. This is so contingent on things that aren't even in my control. Yes. And like none of these people actually give a fuck about me. There is just this kind of decorum around everything. You know? Yep. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there uh the meeting between him and Lee's was so like genuine and and like it was just a good little love story. Like uh he he defends her basically on the street and in the hotel and like uh, there's a scene where a bunch of Czech dudes see so her cool. like German, their German, uh, her German like socks, and they like rip rip them off and run away. And he's like, he gets beat up in the process because he's trying to defend her. And then in the hotel, he gets fired because one of the waiters like spits in her food. She comes into the hotel, and one of the waiters spits in his food, her food, and uh, basically gets fired and gets spit. It he gets. Like every waiter just like spits in his face. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, I mean, their relationship starts out so genuine. You don't, I didn't know at first that she was a Nazi. And then, uh, so it's all very like soft and, and you understand why he would want to be in love with this girl. And they also have like a really hilarious sex scene before they bomb ass, <laughs> before they get, yeah, he like, he has this thing where he like lays flowers on people's rumps, or what does he call them? Their laps. <laughs> he, calls, he puts it right on there, like oh, yeah. He, it's a it's a sort of fetish he develops early on. <laughs> he starts going to uh, uh, prostitutes from in, in his first job, where he likes to lay various types of of vegetation on women's, you know, uh, like just crotchal areas. <laughs> yeah, I mean the relationship is kind of like uh, Indiana Jones. In uh, the third, the third movie, <laughs> mm -hmm. with uh, I think her name was actually Liza in that in the in that movie too, isn't it? I'm forgetting, but I know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, never mind. Pop culture reference that you don't want to pursue it. If it it's fine. Beneath me, it's beneath me. We're on a book. I can't talk about Indiana Jones. I mean, you said Eliza, and I I was like Eliza, and I almost thought of Wild Thornberries. I think it's. <laughs> I think it's more like James Bond's relationship with Xenia on a top. Person, right? No more foreplay. Right. And he's all, yeah. Goddamn. But anyway, I mean, I, I think. Can I just say how much I, I wanted to beat off to that scene the first time I saw it? Yeah. When she, 
I wanted her to pop my head like a watermelon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is yeah, definitely a good childhood. The first kind of like dom thing as like a child. I was like, damn. Yeah. Yeah, I actually think you're probably right. For a lot of for a lot of people our age and our generation, that was kind of like the first like, what's happening here? Yeah, do I want to <laughs> yeah. be hurt? <laughs> yeah, we're we were all playing Goldeneye on N64, and then that scene you know, you see Just that rumble scene packs and, in our labs. <laughs> what's what's happening? What's happening here? Mom! Shit, I'm she's a, she's a playable character in Goldeneye multiplayer. Yeah. But I will say, I mean, I think I thought that like sort of Matt, going back to your point, that that the sort of the the ease with which he he sort of sets up this up and and like the genuineness of their e- emotional connection. And I, I mean I, I won't read it, but that that sex scene with them that is like beautiful when he we, like that when they first sort of have sex, it's like it's super like I'm like damn that sounds bomb like yeah right like, well just just perfect and it, and it may and then it sort of it transitions sort of you know really smoothly into this very like dark place where you know I, I think the moment that he kind of realizes like where he's at is you know when he has to he's forced to be inspected by the Nazi doctors to see if his semen is of, of quality enough to to breed with a, a an Aryan woman. Yeah, so, just a just a German doctor lifting his penis up and calling him an animal. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So I, I I do want to read this part. So uh, this is the the German doctor trying to get him to to go jerk off so they can test his semen. Um. As, and he patted me on the shoulder, handed me some photographs and turned on the light. I found myself looking at pornographic snapshots of naked people. And whenever I'd had this kind of picture in my hands before, I'd always turned stiff right away. But now the more I looked at them and the more I saw those headlines and the stories in the papers announcing that so-and-so and four others had been sentenced to death and shot. And there were more of them every day, new ones, innocent ones. And here I was standing with my penis in my hand and pornographic snapshots in the other. So I put them down on the table because I still couldn't manage to do what I was asked. Wait, I want to keep reading because I think the last sec, I underlined this last section here. So right after that, it says, finally, a young nurse had to come in after a few depth strokes of her hand during which I didn't have to think about anything anymore. She carried off two beads of my sperm on a piece of paper. (laughs) And a half an hour later, they were pronounced first class and worthy of inseminating an Aryan vagina with dignity. Uh, so funny horrible right and then you know now and then he's suddenly in this nightmare of a breeding program yes essentially where he's you know he's having sex with lisa on a on appointment and it's just completely loveless and he's also working in this like you know i don't know uh spa for other aryan women who've been impregnated by by basically a farm yeah, exactly. By like guys who then go and get their fucking legs blown off, and like w- once again, he finds himself the servant to these women who are just like naked around him and stuff, and they just do not see him as a, a person, a real entity. It's just like this thing that comes and like brings them big glasses of milk that they drink. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's just like it quickly becomes very shitty and bleak, and he's desperately wants to get out of the situation yeah so i mean i i I, and i found like this to me was one of the like saddest um the saddest sections in the book is describing him sort of working at this uh 
this like Nazi breeding farm and he's talking about the sort of couples that he sees there. Um, and, and it's so, so I, I'm just, I, I'm so, we're reading a lot on this episode, but I think it's, it's warranted. Um, so this is, this is him describing his experience at the, of, of the people at this breeding farm. This is on 150 to 151. Uh, I could also tell the difference between a soldier from the coast and one from inland and whether he had been a worker or a farmer. And that was my only entertainment as I waited on tables with no break or free time from morning till evening and into the night. I waited not just on men, but also on women who were here on a secret mission, but that mission was sadness and a kind of ceremonial anxiety. I never again, as long as I lived, saw married couples and lovers who were so gentle, kind and considerate to each other or who had so much wistfulness in their eyes and tenderness, like the girls back home who used to sing Dark Eyes or The Mountains Resounded. In the countryside around Kochisek, no matter what the weather, there would always be couples out for walks, always a young officer in uniform and a young woman, quiet and absorbed in each other. I, who had, her, who had served the emperor of Ethiopia, had never experienced this and couldn't put myself in their place. Only now have I got to the core of it, that what made these people beautiful was knowing that they might never see each other again. The new man was not the victor, loud-mouthed in vain, but the man who was humble and solemn with the beautiful eyes of a terrified animal. I was just like, yeah, that to me it was just like the you know, ugh, <laughs> ugh, yeah. and the and the beautiful eyes of terrified animals is something that happens also at the very end. Yep, that's a recurring theme at least a couple times. Yeah, just like him describing the fact, uh, I'm not going to read the full chunk, but just like Lee's talking, like uh, putting on Wagner and uh, <laughs> and so that there was a sense of harmony in her Teutonic womb so that, so that it would be graced by the new man of the new order of the new blood of the new thinking yeah. and the new honor. <laughs> like, and he's just like, and uh, I, I, felt, I felt everything that makes a man drain out of me. Like um, I used to be a mongrel dog, and now, whereas now I had a job to do, like a purebred sire with a purebred bitch. <laughs> Brutal. Yeah, and so I just funny. think so. The the contrast between just like all of this dis the Nazi discourse about all that stuff that you were just saying about the new new honor and new man and all that, and it's just right. sad people who are just going to die and. You know, there's another description later when he works at another sort of spa for people coming back from the war of them all just like swimming around like tadpoles and mermaids, like having their legs blown off in this water and trying yeah. to remember and it. And the, 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 the juxtaposition between the discourse and the reality is just so, so sad. That was great. That description of like, yeah, the young men back from the front, like swimming and they seem all all like strength and, and vitality and then and then they slowly drag themselves back onto the like beach and they just don't have legs <laughs> it's like very eerie yeah so so a, another sort of point of irony about this this whole nazi discourse is that you know after this after this um process of breeding and sort of farming and testing and all that and his his perfect sperm and this perfect nazi woman that he's married they they wind up do they do have a child um and the child turns out to be a, a, a complete like 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 mentally handicapped and like not capable of taking care of himself uh and it's just like this horrible cruelty right just this this, yeah. cre this cretin yeah he calls him a cretin my favorite word well, and and once again, I think it that 
his son like uh that creeps into his to Didi's like nature of not feeling worthy or something like oh even my even after all this my sperm isn't worthy and even before that too like when he's getting married at the marriage ceremony Lee Liza was her name Lee's I don't know yeah um she's like a well-known girl like she's the uh, daughter of a hotel owner and that's one thing that attracted him to her in the first place and at the marriage ceremony like all of these Nazi generals and you know comrades are like they love her and they're like shaking her hand and she's like the center of attention but Didi is having like that same feeling he had when he was working in the hotels he kind of thought that marrying Lee's like I fucking I'm retarded don't worry um he thought that she like this marriage would kind of boost him up socially but in this moment where he's getting married to her he's like going to shake these Nazis hands and they like won't shake his hand they still think of him as being like a lesser being because right he just works as a waiter or whatever he's Jack he's not really one of them and they they kind of had this bitterness towards him because they're like how did you get this beautiful young girl when I have all these freaking Nazi medals on my chest right now and she picked you yeah so he never he never really gets into that world the way he wanted to um and I think that was a big parallel to how he felt when he was waiting tables all those times like he never really felt like he could make it past a certain level because there was always some sort of disrespect or like there had to be something greater for him to jump to the next level and he's constantly searching for it but it's not working out for him and even this marriage to this beautiful woman and moving away and leaving his past behind it still didn't work out well i think you're onto something a little bit paul with like it you know because that marriage starts off like you said there's this like sex scene you're like damn all right and then like it, it, you know it starts off as something genuinely beautiful and naturally occurring and, and this kind of thing and of course that but th- what that happens is he ends up achieving something that is considered by all these people who put the fucking time in and follow the rules because he's just flitting from one like regimented situation to an and hierarchical situation to another and like the big sin there every time no matter where he goes is like skipping a step or like seeming to step out of turn with his appointed rank yep and he gets fucked over every time that happens because like you know they eventually they find a reason to what like arrest him and beat the shit out of him even though he is still Lisa's husband and you know like yeah well yeah he goes he goes back to Prague I think and then he gets mistaken for an informer and he gets right. beat up and he's he in jail mistaken, for like he gets mistaken for Zdenek who was yeah. who, who is who is working uh for for the opposition and you know he sees Zdenek on like a, a a train station at a train station and they you know they grab him because he sort of looks like Zdenek and was making the sort of motion that they thought was gonna was the 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 you know whatever the sign that the person was gonna make and so they grab him instead of Zdenek and yeah but he ends up actually loving it he, he's like laughing the whole time like blood's coming out of his nose and he's like loving it because he he actually has kind of denounced his the choice he made and actually wants to be back in Prague someday and have the respect of these hotel owners and he's like that I fuck myself because I'm married to a German and now my country is under occupation. So he, he like, he loves the entire 
stint of his his jail time. Mm-hmm. He thinks of it as like some sort of saving grace that if he ever comes back, he'll be able to because of like, oh, you you uh, you were in prison, so you're you're not a Nazi sympathizer or whatever. But that doesn't work out either. <laughs> I mean, he he loves he loves being purified by punishment. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so so ultimately, Which is very German, very um, Nazi of him. Well, they, they they're they're described they're basically like the 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 way they render the kind of death cult that is you know the blood and soil nationalism that they're sort of you know what I mean like is is so well represented by all those couples like like again this would be more in the sentimental rather than sensitive realm of like the the special like they would meet and like gaze into each other's eyes at the hotel before the men would leave for the front and like all part of the like scintillating pleasure of of that interaction is doomed romanticism which yep. is just sort of like all the shit and the same thing happens with Lee's like she goes to one of the fronts and she needs to literally see like young men because she's a nurse on the front and she needs to see recharge emotionally in her sentimental nihilism by like seeing young men get killed and have their fucking limbs blown off and suddenly she's back to like being horny for Didi in the like regular way you know yeah. it's like it's like just the most fucked dynamic yeah so the war starts to turn um and uh ultimately um you know Lee's and and Didi are separated and um Lee's I believe goes back to her hometown um, to where her father owns Cheb. El Cheb, yep. Um, and Didi Cheb. goes to try to find her there, and she has her son with him, with her. And uh, the city gets bombed, and um, she dies in the bombing. And the son is, you know, to be given up to a, a you know, some sort of organization that watches, you know, invalid kids. And they say that the son's favorite thing is to drive a nail into uh, the ground with a single stroke. <laughs> yeah, so that's, this, this comes back later is that the, the kid, one of his like, you know, I don't know, I don't know what the proper term is, but one of his little his obsessions is that he he loves hammering nails, and so he just is constantly hammering nails over and over and over again. Um, yeah, and so but, oh, can I just like, but like, I just love that they, you know, after all of this selective breeding. You know the 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 product notably is a strong cretin. Yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they did their job, didn't they? Yeah. Uh, but that scene where um, uh, he comes and finds Lee's and she's dead. That scene was fucking terrible. It was like the first. It was the first time in the book where it took a huge dark turn for me. Her head um, fell off. Yeah, so he, he buried her. He couldn't find the head. He uh, he she's she's found gripping the suitcase, which is we haven't talked about the suitcase yet. But the suitcase holds these like stamps that were what like, Jewish stamps from before the war. And she's like, these are gonna these are worth a lot of money once the war yeah, is over. Nazi plunder that's that's happens to be worth a lot of money. Yep. So I mean, he he finds Lisa's body. He buries her. He never finds the head. And he basically just walks away with the suitcase and leaves his son there. He yep. like gives him a bag of nails and he's like, he just walks away from the situation, which was brutal as shit. But I can't, I don't know. Cue black that metal. Was 
<laughs> that was uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a big shift for me in his character, but he instantly starts feeling like horrible guilt, and he starts like basically hearing and feeling nails being driven into his scalp at all times. It's like I w- I just wrote the telltale heart next to that scene. I was just like yeah. You know, just a little doff of the cap there. So the last, the last section of the book, after he, his wife dies and and his son is, you know, left behind, uh, is titled, it's titled "How I Became a Millionaire," which I think is just <laughs> hilarious. It's like you, 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 know, you just read this horribly poignant scene of him finding his decapitated wife's head and like his son just like pounding nails into the rubble of their bombed building and like. The next chapter is just how I became a millionaire. <laughs> just Scott Adams. <laughs> um, and essentially, essentially, this section is, you know, he sells the, the stamps and the, and the plunder that he was recovered from his wife um, and is able to buy his own hotel, which is in this old quarry. Um, and he sort of builds it up to be this fantastic. He buys a couple hotels, but he has to sell them because of this this telltale heart nail pounding thing that he keeps hearing in his head. And he ultimately builds his own in this, this quarry and it turns into this great hotel and people come from around the world and uh, including some of his old bosses. Um, and, uh, but ultimately the, the coup takes place in 1948 in February um, and all of the, the sort of um, the property is reappropriated to be used for the people, right? And it's communist revolution. Uh, and all the millionaires are rounded up. And he is so happy to hear this because he's a millionaire and he gets to be rounded up with all the millionaires and gets to say, I'm a millionaire. Right. He never gets the notification. And he it gets to the point where he goes to the police office and is like, why didn't you come get me? I'm a millionaire. And they're like, he's like, look at my bank statement. <laughs> you're not on our list. You're not. And I think there's some implication that Zdenek is like pulling the strings behind the scenes to, yes. keep, to keep him out of prison. Um, but he's like, no, look, he shows them his bank statements. He's like, I'm a millionaire. Put me in, in, the, in the camp with all the other millionaires. I love Zdenek too in this moment because like, yeah, he's not there overtly, but I love the double-edged nature of his help. Because mm-hmm. he's like, I get to pay back, you know, the the karma of like you taking my punishment while also still hurting you. It's yes. like he wins so hard for that one. Yes. And uh, yeah. I, just, I just love that quality of his, you know, kind act, quote unquote. Yes. And so they, the, the, he ultimately, they do sort of, uh, I, I guess, take pity on him in a weird way and throw him yes. in with the other millionaires um, in this. It's a it's like a converted uh, church or a converted rectory or or something like that. Yeah, seminary. And, um, seminary, yeah. And uh, the it's it's the next sequence is basically over time showing how the millionaires just sort of start living their normal lives again in their supposed prison. So it starts out like, you know, the guards are like, hey, we, we want some better food. And so the millionaire's like, if I go get some money from my house, we can get my, bring my chef and we'd have great food. <laughs> yeah, and then it start, they start to like, let their wives come and visit. Uh, where yeah. There's special cells that are just for the wives when they're there on the weekends. And ultimately like in the, the final sort of turn of absurdity, the, the millionaires put 
their guards in the cells and pretend that the <laughs> guards are millionaires and then the, and the millionaires <laughs> are the guards as this <laughs> absurd joke. Uh, it's Gabe, so this funny. Is, this is just the Swedish, the progressive Swedish prison model, yes. right? <laughs> It worked. I just, yeah, I just love how they're just like basically they like start a kind of semi hotel. Yeah. As again, as well, like the prison is kind of also a hotel. Yes. Absolutely. Well, it turns it turns into just like dudes rock. Like we just we want to hang. <laughs> it's That's like true. it's like it's like summer camp. Like I mean, one thing I wanted to say about the prison too. I'm pretty sure it has no fence, so like anyone can just leave whenever. Is that yeah. true? Or yeah. Or it's like a tiny fence, and also the guards are walking around. They're like constantly like dropping their guns. <laughs> <laughs> they just they like and well, I think there's one scene where the guard the guard says he doesn't even like his gun, he doesn't want it. It's just like a total weird, it's just a weird scene that I was like, Yeah, it, 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 an it became absurd. Like how how money, you know, like like if you have enough money, things just always tend toward the mean, which is just you're fine and nothing matters. Right, and everything's kind of porous and and for show. Yeah, like and, and yeah, because yeah, they I loved all that stuff where they kept re locking the gate. It's just a gate standing with no wall around. It's just a gate, and then <laughs> yeah. they'd be like, "Oh fuck, I forgot my key," and they'll walk around the gate to the back <laughs> and get the key, and then unlock it and relock it. It's just like, I yeah. mean, stuff like that is yeah. And so, oh, I mean, sorry. Well, I think one thing we should talk about. I think we're going a little bit long, but honestly, this book was so jam-packed. It's more like a 320-page book, so I don't care if we go that long. Yeah, you know, Interesting you know what I mean, number. though. It's like, well, it's just like it, there's no breaks. I mean, a normal book of this length would just be less material. But anyway, it is, yeah, it is oh, just like block text mostly. Um, we didn't actually talk about how he became a millionaire, though. Like he ends up selling the stamps and uh, building this like very cool artistic hotel in Prague, I think in Prague, right? I it's definitely I in about that, didn't I? We mentioned this. Oh, we did? Yeah, dude. The quarry hotel? I don't remember hearing the word quarry. Wait, are you kidding me? <laughs> was I just was I just zoning out for like, Damn, dude. Oh, we, we literally talked about that. Are you checked out? I, uh, Get it? I am checked out. I am checked too. I think it's this coffee. There's something in it. I think we we, we did. We're doing Spinecracker's Morning Edition so that we could be zippier and on our fucking game. I am zippy. I think I zipped along too fast though, and I skipped. <laughs> I skipped. I skipped time. I traveled through time. You know what you zipped like that guy in the hotel who does the zip line diving into the okay. quarry lake. Fuck pro here. Well, that's funny. I did not. I literally do not remember talking about the hotel at all. But, also, so. what what is the significance? <laughs> I was so curious why Steinbeck, Steinbeck was included as another name so, drop. So it, it does have a similar sort of thing to the kind of like, like, uh, you know, the, the, the book we read last week, Nazi literature in the Americas, which is that, where's that the character does interact and, and also Forrest Gump. Where the, yeah, exactly. The, the, the main character does sort of in, in his own sort of stumbling, stumbling way interact with important real historical figures, whether it's Haile Selassie or Steinbeck coming to his hotel. Um, there's real historical figures that he interacts with here. So yeah, I, I, that was a little puzzling to me too, Matt. It was like a big deal for him that Steinbeck comes to the hotel and Steinbeck tries to buy the hotel actually. Um, yeah. I didn't I didn't really know what to make of that, that story. Me neither. And he's like, maybe I would have done this, but I wish I had a higher profile author like Hemingway. And I was like, I don't know what this is, but seems like some tomfoolery is afoot here about these guys. 
I think what I made of that scene was that um, uh, Dee Dee was constantly trying to grasp onto uh, being in the upper echelon, and this hotel was his his thing. And I think the Steinbeck trying to buy it possibly would have even gave him some social dignification that he was after, but he denied it because he thought this was the be all end all thing. Like this hotel was his. I almost wish he did take the money because he kind of found this realm of like artistic creativity in the hotel that was like beyond his other hotel owners. Mm-hmm. And I was like, maybe this is his thing, but he, he's so it, like enabled, enabled, enamored, enamored with the thought of owning this hotel that he just can't let it go. And ultimately, Um, you know, ironically, I think, or not ironically, but just perversely, like, I think he gets more sense of recognition and, and, uh, and affirming up of his kind of identity as he, so as he wishes it to be uh, from being jailed than actually having like an artist buy anything off of him. And I think because, yeah, uh, Sort of like you said earlier, Matt, he's always kind of like coming to where he's at in the wrong way or at the wrong time. And, yeah. you know, even when he's finally, ad- you know, admitted to the millionaire's prison, the other millionaires don't don't respect him because, you know, he was a he's a war profiteer. He got his money yeah. the wrong way at the wrong time. Um, and yeah, so- it's not just it's not just new money. It's new Nazi money. Right. Exactly. Yeah, he's nouveau riche in the worst kind of way. <laughs> it's like teeth in a drawer with gold fillings. It's like not yeah. cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to uh, piss. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. All right. Um, so finally, the, the last, the very last section of the book is him sort of moving. He embraces his sort of working. He's like a, a working class person now in the communist government and he's forced to do manual labor. He goes out and works in a forest cutting down some trees with a French professor for a little while um, and and a, a young girl. And ultimately he winds up as this sort of hermit living alone in a cabin in the woods, maintaining these very obscure like logging routes um, in the middle of nowhere uh, with a dog and a, a horse and a donkey and a cat as his only companions. A goat. Um, it's a goat. It's a goat. Actually. Yeah. Sorry. Jesus Christ. Whatever. <laughs> um, he he goes into town on the weekends, and the villagers love him, and he tells them these crazy stories about his life, and he do, does his sort of like I know things that you don't know because I served the emperor of Ethiopia, <laughs> and it's just sort of a moment of him kind of like reflecting on on his life and going back and thinking through things and kind of like kind of deriving lessons from his various experiences. And ultimately it's sort of like, kind of wraps up as him sort of writing this book as he's going. He's doing a little self-crit as we say. Doing some self-crit for sure. Yeah. And, and that's basically it. This part to me was, I. this is relative to the rest of the, uh, you know, the whole preceding book, which was like fantastic. But relatively, this was the weakest portion for me, I thought. I Just because um, I, like, I didn't expect, uh, you know, Krabal to, like, lay it, lay it as, as plainly, maybe, yeah. as he did in this portion. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. It was, I mean, I thought it was, was well-written, and there were some really, like, poignant moments, like, 
with the animals and the, the the little villagers and stuff that he that he interacts with. That sounds like he's fucking talking about Animal Crossing, the little villagers and animals. <laughs> um, but, That's right. <laughs> but, uh, so I thought there were some really good moments and lines. Like I thought the the stuff about him telling the villagers that if they ever find him dead, to bury him like halfway on the hill. So when his body decomposes, half of it will flow into this river and half of it will flow into the other. Yeah, I, I really like that sort of stuff. But yeah, I I didn't really think it was necessary. The whole sort of like, you know, like it's just like you can picture it in a movie where he's like sitting back in a, a on, at a desk. He's like, and now I'm telling you this story. And, right. like, and he's like the actor with old man makeup on and a fake beard just like it, it really felt like the sort of final scene of titanic and i was like uh don't need it well he's tending this road and and it's straight up just like the road is like just basically a metaphor i suppose for like his life and it was just like life is a highway <laughs> it's just like okay yeah. well so again yeah i i but anyway so that that's it that's pretty much the story yeah, it was kind of like the end of Forrest Gump. Yeah. Jenny dies and his kid goes off to school. And he was relating the story to some other listeners. On a bench. Yep. Um, so any final takeaways? Any sort of thing you want to hit on before we do the what we have to do? What we got to do. No, Not I mean, really. Uh, over, overall, I would just say I really, I did really love this book. I like I liked reading and switching it up to something that was like uh, written to be funny, which was, I don't think I've ever read right. a book like that before. So it was good. Well, good Eastern, Eastern, Eastern Europeans of this time period, my man. Yeah, I thought it was, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was funny. It was really sad. It was political. It was, it was like just, yeah, I loved it. Probably a hundred million times better than Hume's will. Come on, man. All right, so let's, do, <laughs> let's transition to the fan favorite segment. We literally just read another book. Yes. Where we uh, indulge our basest lizard brain instincts and put the main characters of the book we just read into Harry Potter houses. Which is... Dee I feel like Dee it's only it's only through the end that uh, Didi might be Gryffindor for me. Mm, spicy. Because he was fucking only towards the end. I thought he was Gryffindor throughout. I feel like he was uh no, he because he's not particularly loyal, that's for sure. And uh he's acquisitive and opportunistic loyal. in a lot of ways. And he just kind of copies people. A lot of well, loyal, loyal is an is an attribute of uh, Hufflepuff. Hufflepuff. Oh, well, that's why I'm saying he's not. Not a Hufflepuff. Yeah. No, he's not a Hufflepuff. I was I was gonna go with Slytherin until the end, mm -hmm. and so I'm gonna go just sort of like, uh, hmm, a Gryffindor who who left the path of, of Griffins or whatever, I don't know, whatever the fuck. <laughs> <laughs> he's fucking Slytherin until the end, then he's Gryffindor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Like, he, he, he turned into a Gryffindor at the very end. That was, like, his prize as, like, an older man who, who was able to, like, successfully 
incorporate his prior experiences. I mean, he's, he's basically he's Slivendor. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no! Are, are we gonna do gonna like? Say- are we gonna do like Inside Out, where it's like mixtures of emotions now? Like we're gonna have like? No, no, we can't. We can't do that. Slither puffs and fucking huffledores. No okay. No way. He's this. I'm gonna just say Slytherin. I'm not getting into this mixed house thing. Fine. You know what? I will. I'm gonna go Slytherin too then, because otherwise I have to do the mixed thing. Slytherins can be honorable. True. Yeah. Just like what do we say? Hufflepuffs can rape. rape. All right, and let's keep that focus. Gabe's wife walked in and heard us say that alone. Probably, (laughs) probably the only thing of this podcast she heard. (laughs) (laughs) No, the other thing she heard was how awesome the sex scene was. (laughs) Oh, great! Listen, dudes rock, dudes read. All right. (laughs) Um. So yeah. uh, Yes, I think Slytherin. Okay, what about um, uh, Sedenic? Hufflepuff? He like okay, we should note that at the very end there's this poignant scene where Zdenek comes and just like visits him in the forest and they don't really say anything and there's no and he just kind of turns and walks away. They kind of just walk away from each other after just kind of like mutually it's like the end of for presumably like, the last time. It's like the end of that Batman movie where uh you know Alfred if I'll say you, if I'll say you, Aaron. oh yeah, 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 <laughs> just unacknowledging each other, but a little twinkle in each other's eyes. That's kind of what it was like. Yeah, I would, yeah. I'm gonna go Hufflepuff as well for sure. Yeah. I think the next is Hufflepuff. I'm gonna say Hufflepuff. Yeah, he's Hufflepuff. Strong Hufflepuff though. Else? Is there anyone else who really deserves a rating? Lisa. What about yeah, Lisa? I would say Slytherin. I would say <laughs> I would say bad Gryffindor. I think bad Gryffindor for sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Maybe. Because, I mean, that whole scene, she's very, like, you know, the whole scene where she pours the soup all over herself in the hotel, it's hilarious. Yeah, she's pretty, like, in your face, Chad. She's bad Gryffindor. So, like, so like a Gryffindor that maybe became a Death Eater for a short period. Yes. No, no we're not. We're not slipping in and out. Bad that, wasn't, that wasn't... Death Eaters aren't a house. That's true. You're right. You're right. Never mind, Paul. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. Have you read Harry Potter? Yes. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> the fuck would you say that to my face? Um, I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm sorry. I, would, I crossed the line. If this was a different time period, that would be dual worthy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think, I don't know. Those are the main ones that I thought of that needed ratings. Yeah. yeah there's, a lot of, there's a lot of characters I would like to do to dive in deep to it, but we don't really have to. Yeah. No, there's a lot of characters in the book. Characters in this book that we could go on and on about, but I think those are the big kind of three. Um, yeah. So, what'd you guys think? What'd you guys think in terms of uh, how much you liked liked this book in a reductive number rating that tells you nothing about it? I was gonna go with a four point one. Nice. I'm gonna write these down. I got it. Okay. Uh, I I would say four point two five. I love that. Uh, for me, it's like a 4.68. I really loved it. Nice. You Overall, know, positive as shit. This is a good ass you know, book. Mine was going to be a 4.5-ish or so, and I might... Like, I, I do think the last section was... It dropped some points for me, but 
I did enjoy it so much. I'm gonna bo- I'm gonna boost it up to four point four four. Okay, love it. Right, right on. Uh, yeah. well, that's that's I served the King of England by Bochmilchabal. Folks, that's our three cents on it. Or six your, cents. Your spines have just been cracked. Oh, okay. Right. We're just going to try. Let's just throw some ideas at the wall here. <laughs> Chiropracted. Well, since, since I finished this book, the next thing to do is drill a hole in it so it fits on my dumbbell and I can lift it. Right. Yeah. This is all, this is part, part of Paul's uh, new uh, mind body routine. Yeah, it's a mind muscle connection. So finish a book, drill a hole in it. So it adds to the weight of your dumbbell or bench press. And then you can, you can deadlift it. You can deck. Yeah. You can curl it. You can do whatever. And it'll get, you know, it'll be progressive. Each book we read, you add them to either side. Slowly you're you're lifting more weight. You're getting, you're getting beefier. You're getting in brain and, and bicep. Totally. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Bye. Bye. (laughs)